Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 4th of November 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This podcast is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of this extraordinary community. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds, maybe somewhere in between or beyond, who knows? Whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, so congratulations. This, the Greenwich at Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On today's Friday, November 4, 2022 show, you are reminded that Election Day is here. Now, please be sure to go out and exercise your precious right to vote on Tuesday, November 8th. Speaking of elections, I'll share an amusing poem that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic a century ago. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard wrote in 1930 about then-modern methods of voting as compared to previous ones about the secret ballot of 1864, a novel voting machine that resembled a coffin set on end, and the unfair handling of of voters. <laughs> At the height of America's Gilded Age, some of America's wealthiest families came to Belhaven here in Greenwich, Connecticut. It was celebrated as one of the first and most spectacular residence parks in the nation, thanks to Matt Bernard's incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history, Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. You'll hear about Kent Cottage, principally owned by Jeannie Kent, and constructed in the year 1889. On Greenwich before 2000, we'll go back to the year 1939. We also have, uh, in case you didn't know, over 63 cemeteries and burying grounds dotting the town's landscape. I'm going to share some history with you about the oldest existing one, and that would be Tomac Cemetery in Old Greenwich. I'll have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society, You'll hear about news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public. That includes the Twachtman exhibit, which recently opened. I strongly urge you to go and to see it. It's a fantastic one. My friends, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction, to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. 
Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. All right, well, you know what? The elections are fast coming upon us and all sorts of zany things are going on. It's, um, as some of my friends like to uh, to say, it's the silly season and boy, isn't that true. Well, <laughs> anyway, um, I was going through uh, the, the old... Uh, newspapers uh, here in uh, in Greenwich, and I found a poem that was published um, a century ago in 1922 on the uh, eve of the elections at that time. Um, I'm going to try to read this. It's kind of amusing. At least I think it is. Um, well, we'll see what happens. I've posted this, by the way, at um, Greenwich at Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com for today's show, so you'll be able to, to see it. I've also posted it on Facebook, uh, and so you could see it there, too. So let me take a crack at this and, um, and see what happens. The title of this is Just Before Election. "'Tis the day before election, and all through the land, and not a candidate's too proud to shake by the hand. The lowliest citizen, 
heedless of rags, heedless of blear eyes or hand over jags, heedless of poverty, color or creed, heedless of pedigree, nation or breed, Irish or Dutch or Italian or Yanks, ugly men, jolly men, blockheads or cranks. <laughs> he asks how the kids are and how is your wife, says you never were looking so well in your life. Inquires, inquires about taters and asks about oats and casually brings up the subject of votes, but drops it directly to talk about grain and forgetfully asks how the wife is again. He hands out cigars and or some bootlegger drinks and thus clinches, clinches the patriot's vote, so he thinks. The Patriot voter has little to say, but he winks to himself in a comical way, and the candidate's rival, who passes by chance, entertains him again with the same song and dance. The Patriot mentally murmurs, I vum, what an important citizen I have become. <laughs> 364 days in the year, these statesmen don't know nor care whether I'm here, but I cut as much ice as a rat in the cellar. But just about now, I'm a deuce of a feller. And it's signed J.R., that's all we know. And this was published a century ago in the Greenwich News and Graphic. I hope you enjoyed it. He was prolific and he was a gifted writer and his name was Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. He was also a lawyer, writer, and a very, very gifted storyteller in Greenwich, Connecticut's history. He had a remarkable life. It was one that spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th. He would publish his uh, columns under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale. Don't know where that came from, but um, he referred to the subject of his columns as Cracker Barrel stuff in the uh, in the local press, and uh, we're very indebted to a gentleman, a friend of ours by the name of Frank Nicholson, who collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich articles and published them in compendium form as Greenwich History, the Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson for whom we are quite grateful. The one that I um, have for you today is with the uh, elections in mind. Um, this one dates uh, from November 13, 1930, and um, it was his 89th column. So sit back and uh, just uh, follow along. The, um, uh, the headline on this, the title is Modern Methods of Voting as Compared with Old, a Secret Ballot in 1864. The voting machine that resembled a coffin set on end and unfair handling of voters. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, if 80 years ago Titus Meade, then town treasurer, or Samuel Close, the town clerk, had been told that in 1930 men and women would be voting by machine, they would have regarded their informant as crazy or unworthy of consideration. During that long span of years, the world of science has accomplished many wonderful things, the telephone, the radio, and many others, but nothing has been so surprising as the voting machine. It is possible, however, that the early methods of voting in such strange contrast with the new method may be the cause for such surprise. 
In those very early days, few votes were cast and there was considerable informality in the methods of receiving the votes. In the early presidential election, much time and considerable money were used in the campaigns, but judging by the character of the voters, it is not probable that any downright dishonesty existed, although there were many opportunities for illegal voting. But the fervor of the campaigns was manifested in the pictures of the candidates hung in conspicuous places. Fiery speeches, illuminations, and grand torchlight processions to which a good-sized boy of 14 was eligible, and the boys did not hesitate to march for both parties, whatever the political faith of their parents. They added to the show and a midnight feast of sandwiches, sinkers, quote-unquote, don't ask me what that is, and hot coffee in the neighboring town where they often appeared as a strong inducement to be neutral. But while on the march, they were vociferously loyal to whatever candidate they were momentarily marching under. Hmm. <laughs> the thousands of voters the, yeah, who um, used the machines this year were doubtless under the impression that it was the first occasion where complete secrecy had surrounded the casting of their vote. They realized that the comparatively new Australian ballot, often found to be marked and thrown out by the counters, was not an absolute guarantee of secrecy. Peculiar notations, the handwriting by which a new name was substituted and the improper folding and then refolding of the ballot have been known to reveal about how a citizen had voted. It could certainly be said that the ballot was not a straight ticket, quote-unquote, but the click of the machine revealed no secrets. But this was not always the case. And as long ago as in 1864, an attempt was made by the town to render the vote absolutely secret. Prior to the Civil War, Greenwich had feverish times, but perhaps no greater than any other rural town north or south. Even before 1856, the absorbing topic of slavery was discussed in all town meeting places. Horse sheds, stores, and debating clubs and it frequently, frequently led to rancor and personal abuse. The feeling was intensified when, on March 6, 1857, the Dred Scott decision came from the Supreme Court, and there were many who felt that slavery as a permanent institution was right and no longer to be discussed. But the anti-slavery element, which had crystallized into the Republican Party, had been defeated in the fall of 1856 by the election of James Buchanan to the presidency. Had many ardent supporters in Greenwich. In those days, the two parties were nearly equally divided. The American, or quote-unquote, know-nothing party, had having drawn considerable from, uh, from ranks of the Democratic Party. The townhouse, located where the Soldiers' Monument stands, was the voting place. By the way, my friends, if I can interrupt, uh, you can see that. It's the Soldiers' Monument that is directly opposite the uh, Second Congregational Church at the intersection of Maple Avenue and East Putnam Avenue today. Uh, going back to the article. The moderator presided on such occasions, standing behind the ballot box and received the ballots as they were placed before him, on the lid of the box. There was no registry list for the checking of voters, but the watchful eyes and, let me turn the page here, 
ready pencils of political workers of both parties were proof against repeating. And it must be remembered that the number of voters was small and every one of them personally known to the moderator. The ballots were never uniform in size or texture and were easily identified before the moderator would thrust them through the slit of the box. It became, therefore, a matter of public knowledge whether a Republican or Democratic vote had been cast, and it was quite easy for the workers in the, at the polls to tell the result of the election before the official count was announced. In many instances, this knowledge of how a man had voted worked great annoyance or actual loss to the voter. More than one servant was discharged for not having voted, as did his employer. Hmm, oh dear. The, the state of affairs led to the adoption by the town at its annual meeting in 1864 of a primitive secret ballot. There appears to have been considerable excitement upon this subject. The record is silent as to the author of the resolution or whether there was any opposition to its adoption. But contemporary authorities have said that the matter caused a warm debate and the resolution was adopted by a handsome majority. The phraseology of the resolution indicates the feeling and haste with which it was prepared. Its reproduction, which follows, may be of interest. Quote, Resolved that the right is guaranteed each citizen of Greenwich by the state of Connecticut, by the Constitution, and his oath as a free man of the state, to cast his ballot without fear or favor, and the obligation to, duty, to duly protect each citizen in his right, so to cast his vote, and, whereas, undue scrutiny has been given at the ballot box intimidating citizens, resolved that the selectmen shall erect protection around the ballot box, as shall protect the ballot of the free man from inspection except by the officer or officers whose right it is to so inspect." Unquote. In accordance with this vote, the selectmen provided for the November election the first secret ballot ever employed in this state and possibly in any other state. It was a unique affair. There was absolutely no law for it, but the Greenwich farmers believed that the exigencies of the times demanded it. How the voters of those days would have welcomed the present method of voting, of which there was but a crude forerunner. There appeared to be a difference of opinion among the old settlers of half a century ago as to how long the so-called secret ballot was employed. Some claim that it was used for two or three years, while others insist that it was violently removed before the November election was over. But be that as it may, the Stanford Advocate, in its issue of November 11, 1864, gave an account of the device which we venture to quote as follows. Quote, the election in Greenwich passed off quietly. The only matter of importance was the appearance in the townhouse on Tuesday morning of a new and most ingenious voting machine. On going to the townhouse in the morning, the selectmen discovered that someone had erected a curious machine on the desk or platform used to support the ballot box. It very much resembled a coffin set on end, the foot downward and the lid turned back. 
A small aperture about three inches in diameter was made about 18 inches from the foot of the machine. It was proposed by the inventor to thrust the moderator from the waist upwards together with the ballot box in this curious invention so that the audience could view his face very much as they would a corpse in a coffin. <laughs> the, the ballot box was to be held before the moderator and so adjusted to the machine to be felt but not seen by the voter. Through the aperture below, he could thrust in his hand feel of the box and deposit his vote without the fear, favor, or affection of any man living except the moderator himself, unquote. The feeling that existed because of the introduction of this device is only partially revealed in the Advocate article. It was openly charged that the screen afforded the moderator an opportunity to put the ballots on the floor instead of in the box, and that such advantage was frequently exercised. While such an opportunity may have been offered, no one has reason to believe that the voting machine was constructed with the idea of perpetuating any fraud upon the voters, or that the moderator was otherwise than honest in the exercise of his duties. The incident serves, however, to illustrate the violent partisanship of those days. Coming down to the latter days before the introduction of the Australian ballot, there was much to criticize in the method of elections. The ballots continued to be distinguishable. Registrars and proper checklists prevented any repeating, but the unfair handling of the voters by the workers of both parties was manifest in the days when Ray's Hall was the voting place. Stickers by which split tickets were secured were very common, and it was sometimes the case that a voter intended to deposit a straight ballot was imposed upon, especially if the voter was somewhat under the influence of liquor. Hmm. <laughs> it was charged in those days that both parties were given to the purchase of votes, but such a practice was never established, and it probably never actually existed. But there were times when the farmers were busy that their help may have been paid by the workers for the loss of time or the expense of transportation. But even that charge was never established, and we are bound to give them the benefit of the doubt and declare them not guilty. But certainly everyone will rejoice in the new order of things by which the voter exercises his right of franchise without fear or favor and secretly and alone accordance in the dictates of his conscience. And that's signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, 
and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman, is opening at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19, 2022, and it will be closing on January 22, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. Life and Art programs and events that will be held uh, very soon will be as follows. There's going to be a member preview party that will be on Tuesday, October 18th from 6 to 8 p.m. Cocktail reception celebrating the opening of Life and Art. Weekly guided exhibition tours, those will be held on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. These are free with museum admission. Join Greenwich Historical Society curators, educators, and docents for a weekly 30-minute guided tour of the exhibition, offering insights into a variety of topics, including Twachman's life in Greenwich and his ties to the Holly Boarding House. In Cascab. A guided tour of John Henry Talkman's Greenwich property will be held on Saturday, October 22nd from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Step directly into artist John Henry Twachman's world on this guided outdoor tour of the grounds surrounding the Greenwich house that was once home to the painter and his family. Coffee with the Curator will be held on Thursday, November 10, 10.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. Exhibition curator Lisa N. Peters leads an in-depth tour of the artworks on view in Life and Art, offering insights into the research that shed light on Twachman's approach to expanding and modifying the architecture and landscape of his Greenwich home. Workshop with Dimitri Wright, 
retracing Twachman's footsteps, painting and in plain air in Kaskab will be held on Saturday, November 12th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Teaching artist Dimitri Wright will offer students individualized training in impressionist painting techniques on the grounds of the Historical Society while recapturing the spirit of the historic Kaskabart colony. Twakben and Monet, impressionist cross-currents in the 1890s, will be held on Tuesday, November 15th from 6 to 7 p.m. In this illustrated lecture, life and art curator Lisa and Peters will explore similarities between Twachman and Monet, placing them within the context of changes in the 1890s in the Impressionist movement that impacted both artists. And finally, afternoon in the reading room, Twachman, in his own words, will be held on Sunday, January 8th, 2023, from 2 until 4 p.m. Join Greenwich Historical Society Archives and Curatorial Staff for an afternoon in the Library and Archives Reading Room, delving deeper into the words and life of painter John Henry Twachman and exploring his ties to the Holly family in Kaskab. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, and the various programs and events associated with the exhibition, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. At the height of America's Gilded Age, America's wealthiest families clustered in such places as Newport, Southampton, Bar Harbor, Tuxedo Park, and here in Greenwich, Connecticut, an enclave called Bell Haven. It's home to one of the first and most spectacular residence parks in the entire United States of America. Successful American Magazine described Bell Haven in 1902 as a non parallel spot, surpassing in beauty while equaling in elegance the pet of the fashionable world Newport and outshining tuxedo in brilliance and gaiety. Now, all of this you can find and a whole lot more in a fantastic book that I strongly recommend to you. Its title is Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. Its author is Matt Bernard. It's an incredible compilation of Bellhaven's rich history. Um, it features beautiful photos and ephemera, a culmination of decades of work and research on Matt Bernard's part. We are just truly grateful for uh, for that. Uh, by the way, you can purchase copies of that at the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store, uh, located at 42 Strickland Road in Kaskab, uh, or you could find it on your favorite online bookseller. 
Now, I've decided to share with you today, under the beautiful blue skies that we are having here on this Indian summer in Greenwich, Connecticut, on today's show, um, a particular uh, house that, um, I, when I first saw it, I really liked it a lot. I wish it were mine. <laughs> anyway, um, it's Kent Cottage. Its principal owner was Jenny Kent. It was built in 1889. The address is 40 Bush Avenue. And the architect is the firm of Rossiter and Wright. So sit back and relax. And let me share you about Kent Cottage. Jenny Kent, who lived from 1850 to 1927, was once among the most popular women in Greenwich society. As the permittee of the Kent House in Belhaven, one of the largest summer inns in Greenwich at the turn of the century, she knew just about everyone in town. She was born in New York City, the daughter of a Baptist minister who came to Greenwich in 1877 to lease a modest home on Field Point Road with her widowed mother, who planned to run it as a seasonal hotel. First called Kent Cottage, not to be confused with the residence under discussion here, um, it was later expanded and rechristened Kent House. Sarah Martin Kent died suddenly that first summer, leaving young Jenny in charge of an untested business she knew little about. By the way, her brother, Halsey, would eventually become co-proprietor of Kent House, but he was only 17 at the time of Sarah Kent's death. Hmm, what a challenge that must have been then. All right, their landlord, Thomas Rich, who owned not only this property, but also the operator of the nearby Byram Quarry, and would build one of the first Belhaven cottages for his daughter, encouraged Jenny to stay the course. Under Jenny's management, the inn prospered, and Kent House became a prime summer destination for wealthy New Yorkers, many of whom eventually bought lots in Belhaven when they became available in the mid-1880s. Now, Kent herself was among the first to buy four lots in the new residence park. She initially built two cottages, the first as her own residence on Mayo Avenue. By the way, it was demolished with no visual record, unfortunately. And the second as a rental property on speculation at 40 Bush Avenue. The two lots to the west of 40 Bush remained uh, vacant, planted as an apple orchard until the 20s when the land was sold, and two identical side-by-side -side facing Dutch colonials were built. Kent commissioned New York architects Eric K. Rossiter, who lived from 1854 to 1941, and Frank A. Wright, from, who lived from 1854 to 1949, to design a cozy Queen Anne cottage. Rossiter and Wright practiced together for 30 years, from 1879 to 1910, designing school buildings, for example, the Hotchkiss School, the President's House at Vassar College, are two examples, hotels such as the Royalton in New York, and clubs, the Water Witch, and some other residences in the Monmouth Hills community, New Jersey, as well as numerous country homes. Much more is known about architect Rossiter than Wright. His father was a painter, Thomas Pritchard Rossiter, a young widower who raised Eric and his two sisters in a Richard Morris Hunt-designed townhouse in Manhattan, and later in a simple Italianate house of the painter's own design in Cold Spring, New York, overlooking the Hudson River. That house, Fair Lawn, by the way, is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Eric Rossiter made Litchfield County his special province. He designed the superb St. Michael's Church in Litchfield, Gunn Memorial Library in Washington, the Boulders in New Preston for Belhaven resident Nelson Mead, and his own summer home in Washington, the Rocks, 
as his own summer home in Washington. The Rocks, oh yeah, I just said that, and well as other numerous houses in the county in styles ranging from rustic to Spanish colonial. Today, Rossiter has a small but devoted cult following. At least two books showcase his work, and on occasion, there are Rossiter house tours in the town of Washington, Connecticut, where the greatest concentration of his cottages remain. Like Rossiter, Frank A. Wright was a product of Cornell University's then-new architecture program. He joined Rossiter immediately upon his graduation in 1879. Wright co-founded the Architectural League of New York and lived in Monmouth Hills, New Jersey, near the Waterwitch Club that he helped design. The neighborhood is now a historic district. Now, for Jenny Kent, Rossiter and Wright made full use of the Queen Anne style's special features. For example, no other New England style took greater advantage of verandas and piazzas. The piazzas on Kent Cottage wrapped around two full sides of the house and parts of the third and fourth, an ideal space for lounging about on hot summer days. The architects designed three projecting gables to shade the piazza, though the Kent Piazza was unusual in that it was partly open to the sun. All things considered, Kent Cottage is a classic Queen Anne with a three-story turret and a delightfully irregular roof whose hips, gables, cornice, and corbelled chimneys gave the impression of controlled chaos. The cottage was sheathed in weathered cypress shingles, using wave and diamond patterns, along with conventional patterning, and trimmed with bottle green shutters and white pillars and balustrades. The floor, the floor plan could hardly have been simpler. The first floor had four large rooms, an entrance hall, a dining room, a library, and a parlor. The kitchen was below stairs, quote-unquote, as... In English townhouses and country houses suggested the house was designed with servants in mind. In Victorian houses, the parlor was usually the main public room, wherein the family could show off its most exotic possessions and play games such as bridge or whilst. One pictures an especially lively scene in this parlor with its rounded turret wall as guests gathered around a piano or acted out charades. The second floor contained three large bedrooms and the third floor, the servants' quarters. The house still exists and remains close to its original condition. There have been a number of minor changes and small additions over the years. A second-story room was created over the western piazza, whose ground floor has been enclosed. The kitchen was brought up from the basement, which mandated that a small addition be added to the side of the house, which included filling in a portion of the original front porch and relocating the front entrance. The original carriage house was modified and converted into a three-car garage. Well, that, my friend, is is Kent Cottage, and that is located in the Bellhaven section of um, Greenwich. You can learn about this house. You can see pictures of it and a whole lot more in a fantastic book that I strongly recommend. That's Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. You know, on a on an Indian, in an Indian summer day like we are having today, where we have nothing but blue skies. I'm actually sitting outside of Coffee for Good wearing my beach shorts and, um, and a short sleeve shirt. I mean, it's that warm um, and, uh, and all. It's hard to think about uh, gift giving with the uh, December holidays coming up. And believe me, uh, what is it? I think that we're about maybe six or seven weeks away from Christmas if you can, and Hanukkah, if you can believe it. Hard to believe, but it's true. Well, if you're trying to get a head 
start on your gift-giving ideas, why don't you consider Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Bayhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. Um, it is available at the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store. You can find that online by going to GreenwichHistory.org, um, or you could stop by for a visit. Um, to 42 Strickland Road, the campus of the Bush Holly House National Historic Site, and purchase a copy in person. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, this is a Friday in November that I don't think you could top. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting right now outside of Coffee for Good, which is located in the Solomon, Solomon Mead House, if I could say it, at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Um, and uh, I thought that I would use this location today to share with you what was going on in the year 1939 here in Greenwich, Connecticut. And my source on this is a book called Greenwich Before 2000. It was published as an updated and revised edition of another Greenwich history book titled Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich Before 2000 goes all the way through the year 1999, and it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, and it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of a fine gentleman here in Greenwich by the name of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and he and his family have engaged in numerous charitable requests, and they have worked very hard to advance the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years. Now, the book is available in the Greenwich Library system, um, and uh, you can uh, borrow it uh, there. On today's show, I am going to go over with you uh, what happened here in uh, Greenwich in the, the year 1939. So, on January 26th of that year, the 188-acre Laddens Rock Farm, it was the former estate of Will Marks, is sold to Boston Financial Interests uh, to be developed for residences. The Central Fire Police Station on Havemeyer Place was opened, and on February 2nd, 1939, the Committee on Government Reorganization, chaired by Judge L. Paul Burke, recommends a strong chief administrator, creation of a Department of Public Works, and a coordinated finance department. On February 3rd, the Pickwick Theater, which closed in January owing to a lack of patronage, opens under new management. And on February 2nd, the day before, the Greenwich Health Association is formed. Now, on March 2nd, 1939, the Town Plan Commission adopts a four-story limit for apartment houses in a residential area, but Field Point Road residents want a six-story limit. I don't know how that turned out, but there it is. On, on April 30th, Christchurch celebrates 200 years of continuous worship in Greenwich. That would be Christchurch Greenwich today. On June 15, the Board of Selectmen accepts 10 acres of land for a park and bird sanctuary in the Laddens Rock Farm section of Old Greenwich. Natural Park, as it is called, is a gift from Alistair Binney, Helen Binney Kitchell, and Daniel Dan Everett Wade. On June 21st, the State Highway Department opens the first 10-cent toll station on the Merritt Parkway, just west of the Riversville Road underpass. On June 26th, the Representative Town Meeting, the RTM, unanimously adopts 
a new, quote, streamlined, unquote, form of government under the reorganization bill approved by the General Assembly last April. The changeover will take place after the October election. A board of welfare is also created to enlarge, quote, the charity concept, unquote. On July 4th, Independence Day, 1939, more than 20,000 people attend the 15th annual Cowell Games program presented by the Round Hill Scottish Games Association on the Moore Estate. And that would be up in, um, up in Round Hill, north of the, um, of the Merritt Parkway. Uh, the house, by the way, of the Moore family is still located at the intersection with uh, Cherry Valley Road, if you want to uh, drive by and see it. It's behind a rather large stone wall, so please don't uh, go in <laughs> without permission. All right, moving along to August 24th, the Greenwich Center for Child and Family Service is created when the Community Council recommends a merger of four welfare agencies, the Social Service League, the Catholic Welfare Bureau, the Greenwich Day Nursery, and the Greenwich Shelter. And also, uh, on that day, a new parsonage is built on the south side of Stanwich Church. That's up in the backcountry, of course. On September 6th, the total school enrollment in 11 public schools is, remember this is 1939, 5,488. On September 23rd, a $15,000 fire at the Riverside Yacht Club consumes 91 bathhouses and a garage next door. On October 19, the town is to be serviced by a newly purchased ambulance bought for $2,348 and to be operated by the police department. On November 2, 1939, the town's American Legion Fife, Drum, and Bugle Corps wins the World's Championship Trophy at the World's Fair in New York. Well, how about that? And on December 9th, the cornerstone of the new $250,000 boys club on Horseneck Lane, Lane is, is laid. The land, building, and equipment is the gift of Albert H. and Jesse D. Wigan of Bellhaven. And finally, to round out uh, the year 1939, uh, also on December 9th, there are 19 manufacturing establishments in Greenwich, employing 972 workers. So that, my friends, is what happened um, in Greenwich in the year 1939. All of this comes from Greenwich Before 2000. Um, it's a book that I strongly recommend, and uh, you can pick that up um, in the Greenwich Library system. We have over 63 cemeteries of various sizes, ranging from just a single plot to um, very, very large numbers of, um, of burials, such as uh, St. Mary's Cemetery or Putnam Cemetery. Um, but I want to take you on a little tour of sorts of the oldest existing cemetery in Greenwich, Connecticut today, and that would be Tomek Cemetery. It's located on the street of the same name, Tomek Avenue, in Old Greenwich. Um, it is a place that is very hallowed and very near and dear to us, those of us who are among the founding or old colonial families that settled Greenwich in the um, in the 17th century. Um, in fact, my um, uh, my uh, my English ancestors who came over from uh, the British Isles and uh, settled here in North America are buried there. Um, and um, I wrote an article about uh, this place for the uh, Greenwich Time. It was published on November 20th, 1988. The title of this is Unlock the Secrets of a Cemetery, Tomac Cemetery, of course. 
Um, and uh, you can read this and even see some um, uh, color pictures that I have posted with this at my blog site, where many of my writings from Greenwich Time are, um, are transcribed and posted, writingsofjeffreybinghammead.blogspot.com. So again, this was published uh, in um, 1988, so sit back and relax and, and uh, follow along. Within every New England town are found some of the most fascinating yet neglected sources of historical information. Burying Grounds A visit to an old burying ground can unlock the mysteries of our historical heritage. Individual gravestones offer a panorama of art, poetry, and history embellished on one-of-a-kind works of mostly unknown stone sculptors. On the stones, weathered surfaces are etched names and dates of settlers, war veterans, unique artistic motif designs, epitaphs, and so on. As realms of hallowed ground, the burying grounds are testimonials to our forebearers' attempts at immortality for future generations to ponder and preserve. I have made survey of these sites throughout Greenwich, as well as organized and supervised cleanup projects at a number of these burying grounds. Out of all of the sites I researched, I found no particular brand burying ground as fascinating as Tomek Cemetery, the oldest existing town burying ground. A treasure trove of early local history, it is here that many early settlers of Greenwich are interred, as well as heroes of the American Revolution. A stroll among the gravestones reveals a variety of 18th and 19th century sculpture, as well as timeless carved epitaphs. Perhaps most mysterious of all are the fieldstone markers, mostly scattered in the rear of the grounds. Though a few are crudely carved, most are faceless, preserving forever the secrets and anonymity of those individuals who sleep beneath them. Tomek Cemetery, mostly surrounded by stone walls, is on the east side of Tomek Avenue. A small iron gate hangs lazily open at the entrance at the main part of the cemetery. Someone standing at the entrance can picture how it must have been a century ago when Greenwich was a predominantly farming community how it was possible to view Long Island Sound from this vantage point. Today, this view is blocked by trees and rows of houses. The burying ground itself is roughly rectangular and contains about one and a quarter acres. A number of large trees, spared from a recent tree-clearing effort, majestically stretch skyward above the tombstones. The front section of the cemetery is mostly grass with high weeds, myrtle, and ivy plants covering the rest. The oldest carved gravestone that has been found at Tomek Cemetery belonged to Gershom Lockwood, who died at age 77 on March 12, 1718. Mr. Lockwood was one of the founding proprietors of the town of Greenwich, the only one whose carved gravestone is known to exist. A number of years ago, the stone was mysteriously stolen and anonymously returned later. It is now kept at the Bush Holly House. The black slate gravestone is embellished prominently with a Puritan death head. The death head, or winged skull, to many gravestone scholars, symbolizes the flight of the soul from mortal man. The motif is striking, to say the least. Few of us would recognize the hardships and low living standards endured by our early ancestors. 
Gershom Lockwood and his contemporaries lived under harsh conditions that would seem primitive to us. The realities of everyday living may seem quaint and charming to some in the latter 20th century, yet when those who now lie dormant in Tomek Cemetery were among the living, many suffered from the climate, famine, epidemics, and disease, poor diet, and so on. The drought and endless heat waves also persisted this past summer, no doubt would have been disastrous for our forebearers. Under such conditions, one can easily imagine just how much mortality figured in the Puritan heart and soul. It was commonplace for the early settlers to wander among the gravestones, especially on the Sabbath day. The symbolic motifs, such as the winged skull on Gershom Lockwood's gravestone, were reminders of the limits of man's mortality. As many could not read, symbols were used to convey and reinforce those concepts. As time progressed, winged skulls gave way to winged faces, some of which appear to be sincere attempts by the stone carvers at portraiture. A few scholars say that one interpretation of this motif is that it portrays the effigy of the deceased with the soul in flight. My favorite of these at Tomek Cemetery is found on the brownstone grave marker of Nathaniel Lockwood, who died on December 22, 1757, at the young age of 31. Willow trees and urns carved on the faces of gravestones are synonymous with the 19th century, and Tomek Cemetery features some fine examples of this motif. Willows and urns are used primarily as a symbol of mourning, hence the name Weeping Willow Tree, quote-unquote. Some of the stones that feature the symbol include those of George Peck, who died December 28, 1823, at age 56. Elizabeth Lockwood, relict, or widow, of Stephen Lockwood, who died October 15, 1831, at age 62, six months and 15 days. And Edward Jessup, who died January 6, 1833, at age 64, whose stone features a willow urn and a small figure. The gravestone of Mary Kimberly appears a strikingly large urn, curved urn on her grave on her marble marker. She died on September 30, 1805, at age 32 years, six months, and two days. The epitaph poems found or carved uh, on a number of the gravestone markers at Tomek Cemetery are emblematic of a poetic energy whose emotions range from sinister warnings to the living to those that express more sentimental thoughts about the individual concerning release from the adversities of life. The epitaph poem is an added element to the desire to commemorate for future generations to read and to think about. On a large slate marker of Deacon Samuel Peck, who died January 29, 1793, is the following inscription, quote, He was a faithful man and feared God among many. All men must come to the cold tomb, only the actions of the just. Smell sweet and blossom in the dust, such actions, friends, were thine. On the gravestone of Nathaniel Lockwood is found the earliest known epitaph poem in my survey of the graveyards of Greenwich, and it goes as follows. Quote, Since life's uncertain oft cut down in prime, Repent nor dare presume on future time. Since mercy's boundless, let not man despair. 
love faithful Christ is saving, if sincere. Unquote. One of the more infamous and popular epitaphs found here in other burying grounds is the poem found on the grave marker of Sarah Knapp, who was born in 1777 and died 1795. Quote, Stop careless youths as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you must be. Prepare for death and follow me. Another epitaph found carved on the gravestone of Edward Jessup, who died in 1833, indicates that he was ill at the time of his death. His is also an epitaph found at other sites in Greenwich. Quote, Afflictions sore long time he bore, physicians' skill was vain. Till God did please to give him ease and take him from his pain. He's gone from this world of care and strife to his restful realm above the sky, there to enjoy eternal light and nevermore to heaven fight. Tomek Cemetery is also the site of the largest concentration of graves of American Revolutionary War veterans in Greenwich. Here we find such soldiers as Corporal Titus Knapp, a private in Captain Abraham Meade's company, and 1775, and who later enlisted as a corporal in June of 1776 in the 2nd Company, Colonel Bradley's Battalion, Wadsworth Brigade of Connecticut State Troops. There are about 18 soldiers of the War of Independence interred at this site. Burying grounds are a perfect place for the interested historian to play the part of, of a detective, solving the mysteries of the past for the benefit of the present and future. Tomek Cemetery, as our oldest existing burial site in Greenwich, stands out among the many other town burying grounds as a firm reminder of our heritage. Sad to say, many gravestones in the Northeast are being worn away by the elements, vandalism, neglect, and acid rain. There's great hope for the future of the preservation of these sites. Tomek Cemetery is a valued monument to a New England Yankee past, a testimonial to our forebearers. And that, my friends, is the text of an article that I wrote titled Unlock the Secrets of a Cemetery, Tomek Cemetery, Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and this was published in the Greenwich Time on November 20th, 1988. Let me add um, a few other comments, if I could, while I have the opportunity. Um, the uh, Tomek Cemetery is owned by the First Congregational Church of Greenwich, which, of course, is uh, located over on uh, Sound Beach Avenue. One of the things that uh, I would like to recommend, of course, I mean, you, you can walk around the, uh, the cemetery at your leisure, of course, but my understanding is that from time to time, the uh, church historian over there uh, leads uh, walking tours, of this particular cemetery, and if so, uh, I would urge you to um, uh, to uh, to join such a tour and um, and to be guided uh, into the remarkable history of uh, Tomac Cemetery. Cemetery is remarkably well cared for today, and we are very very grateful for uh, for that. And also, as I, I I say to anybody who is going to be visiting any of these uh, very old and historic cemeteries. We implore you, please, to um, to please be very, very careful not to touch the uh, uh, the grave markers. Some of them are very, very delicate, um, and uh, and also another thing that um, uh, we ask you not to do is to engage in what is called gravestone rubbing. That's where you put a piece of um, 
of rice paper over the uh, surface of a uh, gravestone inscription and use a, uh, it's a crayon-like uh, block, uh, and, um, and you rub that on, and it uh, manufactures for you an image of, um, of what is found on the gravestone. Uh, my highest recommendation to you, if you would like to, um, to record these images, is to just bring your digital camera with you and um, take pictures, of course, to, um, to your heart's content. So we salute uh, the First Congregational Church of, uh, of Greenwich for their continuing care of uh, this particular historic cemetery, truly the oldest existing one in town. And, um, and we hope that you uh, enjoy your walking tours, whether it's on your own or a guided one, as you explore the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, as we start to close today's show, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the 4th of November 2022 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's been my pleasure to have you with us today. Greenwich was founded on July 18, 1640. It is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we're so glad to have you. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Sight and Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Our next scheduled show is going to be next Friday. That would be November 11. That would be Veterans Day. So that'll be a very, very special day. And I certainly invite you to join us. Please do. You can contact me anytime by email by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to all of our previous programs by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons blogspot.com. I'm so glad that you could join us on this beautiful autumn day. It's Indian summer in full regalia. <laughs> it's a wonderful day and uh, we better enjoy it now because, you know, before you know it, um, things are going to get a lot colder and a lot icier and a lot more snowy. So my friends, if you're not out there uh, enjoying the, uh, the beautiful weather that we are, please go out and uh, this weekend enjoy it. Take very, oh, and one more thing before I forget. How could I forget this? My goodness. Don't forget that November 6th, what do you do? That's when daylight savings time hmm, comes to us. And, um, and as such, uh, you have to turn, or no, daylight saving time comes to an end. I'm sorry about that. So what you do is that you have to turn your clocks back one hour. So please do that. <laughs> I hope that I almost forgot about that. Uh, so um, please go out and enjoy the weather, but don't forget to turn your clocks back um, on November 6th. That's when daylight savings time comes to an end, and we go to um, standard time. We'll see you next week on Veterans Day. Take good care now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you.